Let's take a moment to pray together now. Let us pray. Father, for this time that we have here together, we are grateful. Life is busy. There are so many things clamoring for our attention, regardless of what stage of life we are at. So we thank you that in your wisdom, uh, you have appointed this time for your people on this particular day to gather together in fellowship, to listen to your word together and to discern what you're saying to our hearts. So speak to us today through your word. Thank you that you treat us as individuals. You minister to us as persons through your Holy Spirit, that you know us better than we know ourselves and you know what we need to hear. So bring that word to us through your spirit because we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Those of you with good memories may remember this sermon from a few years ago. But given the stories that have been coming out of Brazil recently about intentional rapacious deforestation, it seemed like a good time to revisit it. So this is a reimagining of the story of Dives and Lazarus, and I just called it a voice from the other side. What I like most about this place is that it's always just the right temperature. That other place was so hot at times, the canopy of leaves above us tamed the worst of the angry sun, kept its face from us. But under that thick green blanket, the air hung wet and still, left us sweltering as we went about our work, wishing for a cool breeze or a cup of fresh water from the well. But there's none of that here. It's perfect. And the light. How can I describe the light to you? It's like that golden hour after dawn or just before dusk when the shadows are long and the sun spreads its glow across everything it touches like spilt honey. It reminds me of those evenings when work was finally done and we'd gather in the warm light sitting by the fire and sharing the little we had together. It's funny how some things stay with you. Stronger than memories, but less powerful somehow because here they can't hurt you anymore. The hours of scraping a living off the land, days of planting, picking, and gathering, well, they've disappeared along with the sore back and the calloused fingers that went with them. I know that they happened, but I can't seem to recall much about them now. But I remember my wife's smile and the way she looked away from me shyly when I first picked up the courage to talk to her. I remember when we first made love the evening we were married by the tribal elder, sloping off to our tents like naughty children with the laughing eyes of the villagers upon us. And I remember our firstborn, the wonder of seeing her thrust into the world, a precious gift from God. We passed her between us 
as if she were the first of her kind, shockingly new. And we loved her with everything we had within us. But I remember too the day the men came. Men with strange speech and odd clothes, smiling, but never with their eyes. I remember their shiny jewelry, their expensive shoes, and the way they looked around them, even as they spoke to us, sizing up our people, scoping out the settlement. I remember when the first of the trees fell, and their machines started ripping up the landscape we naively thought was ours. Making space for cattle, they said. How many cattle do these rich people need? How big are their bellies to need so much food? Why should their hunger matter more than ours? Why are their desires more important than our livelihood? It's easy now to see that I should have acted differently. But an anger burned within me that I couldn't contain. A rage for my people and for justice. Without thinking, I leapt in front of one of the great machines to make them stop this madness. I heard you scream. I felt you slip away. And here I am. There was no trial no media interest, of course. We are the poor, and our lives don't really count back there. The boss's excuse? Nobody saw me jumping into the road. Nobody saw me. Nobody saw me. But he sees me now, and I see him. There he is, over there, across the chasm, along with all the others who, in different ways at various times, didn't see. Didn't see the persecuted, or the poor, or the lonely. Didn't see the beatings, or the bullying, or the exploitation. Didn't see what was blindingly obvious right under their noses or the plain wrong in what they were prepared to do. Didn't see the process of cause and effect, which means that someone halfway across the world can make a single decision and turn the lives of people like me upside down. And the irony is, although they see us now, the invisible ones they managed to ignore all their lives, they still don't see. They ask for mercy, still blind to the fact that they showed no mercy. They seek help for their loved ones, forgetting that their choices destroyed the lives of our loved ones. They ask for someone to come back from the dead so their family might believe, when of course somebody already has come back from the dead, and they didn't pay him a blind bit of notice. It would be easy for me to be angry. But somehow that emotion 
can't really exist here like a fire can't burn without oxygen. Maybe I could speak, send over a few words of comfort because seeing them as they are now, I bear them no malice. I just feel pity for what they've become. But instead, I think I'll just keep silence and pray for mercy. Because to this day, I am still waiting on the only thing I ever wanted from those people. To be seen. We've heard today's parable so many times, we think we know it. But if we hear it as an indictment of the rich in favor of the poor, we've heard it wrongly. Because as Timothy reminds us, money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Paul writes to the people in Timothy's congregation, and he doesn't condemn the rich among them. Instead, he tells them not to be proud, not to place their trust in their wealth, but in God. They're to be generous with what they have, to do good and be ready to share with others. If they can hold their wealth lightly, then they too can win eternal life. So the story isn't about the simple equation, rich is bad, poverty good. This story is not a warning to the rich. It's a warning to the complacent, to those who don't even bother to question the way things are. Day after day, Dives, the rich man in the story, would have passed Lazarus sitting at the gates of his house. And as far as we know, he didn't curse him. He didn't kick him. He didn't pay for some heavies to come in and move him along. Not that it would have taken much muscle to shift him. He didn't mistreat him in any way, as far as we know, in this story. Dive's sin lay in the fact that he had learned to live with Lazarus as part of the landscape. He learned to live quite happily with the assumption that it was okay for him to dress in fine linen and purple robes and feast sumptuously every day while Lazarus lay in the roadside, racked with pain and with hunger. Ernie, could you take it down a fraction? We're getting some feedback. Thank you. Dives learned to shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's just the way the world is. That's just the way the world is. And forgive me for taking this tangent, but we in the church have a few theological skeletons in our closet when it comes to that kind of thinking. There's a verse that we no longer sing in all things bright and beautiful, which says, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high or lowly and ordered their estate. So if you're poor, according to that thinking, it's not because of global injustice and selfishness. It's not because the world's resources are distributed unfairly. It's not because you've been denied the opportunities in which you would flourish and reach your potential. It's because God has decided that you should be poor. He ordered your estate. That's just the way the world is. 
And when that exaggerated view of God's sovereignty settles into our bones, it's just too easy to stop feeling any sense of responsibility for the wider human family. They're God's problem. He's ordered their estate. It's not my problem. And so you stop seeing them. Dives had stopped seeing, if he ever saw at all. And the gravity of this parable that Jesus brings us is that once you get into that condition, you're on the wrong side of the chasm. You've become so blind to injustice and inequality that nothing but a miracle of grace can restore your sight. Listen to Dives, even in the depths of Hades. Father Abraham, take pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue, for I am in great pain in this fire. And that might sound like a reasonable request. But note that even in the afterlife, Dive still thinks that Lazarus is below him in the pecking order. Somebody to be ordered around when you're not ignoring him. And when Abraham refuses that request, Dive says, send him to my brother's house so he can warn them not to come to this place of pain. Who's he concerned for? Other people like Lazarus sitting, wasting away at the gates of the rich? No. Apparently, he's not learned anything from this chastening. He's only concerned about his own kind, just as he was in life. The parable isn't really about riches. It's about those who refuse to see. And to some extent, that's all of us who live in the prosperity of the Western world. We are dives when we make our consumer choices thoughtlessly, paying no heed to where things come from and who we're supporting in our purchases, as long as we get the price or the dividends that we want. We are dives when we buy that new kitchen or that new car or that new house without first asking ourselves, do I really need those particular things or do I simply want them? What choices would God have me make here? Do we ever stop to ask that question in the big purchases in life? Could I maybe spend a little less that would allow me to give more away? We are dives when we worry about slight fluctuations in the stock market, forgetting that half the world's population, three billion people, live on less than a pound a day. We are dives when we find ourselves maybe even subconsciously thinking and believing the lie that because we have more money and possessions, our lives are worth more than those of people in the two-thirds world. We are dives. Not someone richer than us, not someone more selfish than us. We are dives when we fail to see. See what? See the face of God in our brother and sister. See them for what they truly are, a beloved child of God, bearing God's image and sharing God's worth, even if they don't yet know it. The Christ in whose name we gather 
It tells us that at the end of days, he will stand before the peoples of the world and ask them to account for how they looked after those in need. I tell you the truth, he says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did for me. The truth is that every time Dives stepped over Lazarus, walked around him, or just plain ignored him, he was stepping over, walking around, and just plain ignoring God. He just didn't see. May God help all of us who claim his name to do better. Amen. And thanks be to God for the call and the challenge of his word.